Hey friends, this is Waterworks Ministries podcast episode 23. How exciting is this? And it's being offered to you on April 13th, Friday the 13th. Woo! Some people don't like this day. Me, doesn't matter to me. I'm not really all that superstitious. But anyway, this is a continuation from episode 22 and we're still moving on to talk about the action side of things, what we can do as individuals to identify injustice, not only tell God about it, but discern how we are required to take action. So get your notebooks out. We're going on a journey. I am your host, Reverend Karen Weiss, and I am so glad to be here with you today. FYI, we're coming to the close of season two, We've got a couple more episodes and then we'll take a break. I hope that you've been challenged and strengthened through season two's content on spiritual warfare and evil. It has certainly been a blessing for me to interview the fabulous people that I've had on my show and come up with new content for you to talk about this important issue. Now, as a reminder, Waterworks Ministries is a ministry of prayer that provides empowerment, knowledge, and nurture through activities including spiritual direction, coaching, training and retreats, and justice work. So please reach out to us if you've been feeling the nudge to start direction, have a coach, or bring us in for training. We have a limited number of spots for spiritual direction and coaching in our monthly schedule, and our dates for the fall are filling up quickly for training and retreats. These are by appointment only, so email or message us with your availability and we'll get you scheduled. We love helping people grow deeper in their faith walk and in their relationship with God. It's why we're here. Now, before we jump into the podcast and the content, I just want to highlight some thanks and gratitude to Jody Cole, one of our season one guests. Jody led an icon writing workshop retreat at the Jesuit Center uh, April 2nd to April 6th just last week and I was blessed to be able to participate in that. I wrote an icon of Mary Magdalene, the Apostle to the Apostles, uh, timely since it was you know right after Resurrection Sunday and if you haven't listened to the episode from season one with Jody. I want to encourage you to go back and do that. Check out her website. She is an amazing icon writer and has some different things available for sale, um, like note cards, jewelry, Christmas ornaments. So if you have someone in your life who is interested in those kind of things, who is very visual in their spiritual life. Um, Jody is a great source and, and I encourage you to check her out. I'll have her website in the show notes, Uh, but you can also go back to season one and find her. I believe she's our fourth interview. So the fourth episode. Um, So thank you, Jody. It's always a blessing to be in your space and learn from you and just be invited to interact with God in a new and different way. So grace and peace to you, Jody. Thanks. 
Now let's jump into this episode. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. And as I said before, if you haven't listened to our last episode, go back and do that first. So you have the background info on the historical separation uh, between God and Hasatan, as well as our uniquely human ability to tell how to tell God how much a situation stinks. But lamenting to God isn't the end of it. We're called to action. The highlights of today's episode will include a review of Judges, section of Amos, Leviticus, a couple of Jesus sayings, a hint at Genesis, and some other stuff to weave together an understanding of how much God cares about the oppressed and how it's our responsibility to combat evil in this world. Because God's concern and our earthly responsibility are inextricably linked, intertwined, and melted together. So we're going to start with Judges, because who doesn't love that crazy book in the Old Testament? I know a lot of people who haven't read it, but I encourage you to read it, take 45 minutes, and look at the crazy that is in there. But here's a beer, excuse me, here's a brief review of the pattern in Judges. One, the Israelites don't follow the Torah. Two, a neighboring tribe's army comes to oppress them for a long period of time. Three, the Israelites cry out to God because they are oppressed. Four, a judge is raised up to rescue and lead the people. And then the cycle starts all over again. Now, this cycle wouldn't work if no one was willing to step up and be the leader for the people. And so it's this action that I want to talk about in detail today. We need to step up and step out and be Jesus' hands and feet in this world because God requires us to act in the face of evil. We aren't to shrink away from injustice and think, oh, you know, I think somebody else should take care of this. If God is tapping you on the shoulder, God's invitation is for you to join the party, to make change in every single one of our spheres of influence. So for example, I'll give you a very um, real and recent example from my life. The Nestle company is looking to move to Center County to build a bottling plant to sell our groundwater to the nation. They want to extract 158 million gallons of water per year and remove it completely from the watershed. Now, as a former environmental engineer with a focus on groundwater contamination cleanup and hydrogeology, it seriously concerns me that this volume of water could be totally removed from our watershed and ecosystem. Because Spring Creek, which is a Class A trout stream, fed primarily through cold water springs, which are fed by groundwater, Spring Creek is a mecca for recreationalists and fly fishermen. 158 million gallons is a lot of water to remove from a Class A trout stream. The idea that our watershed could potentially be sucked dry, in part, 
because of consumeristic greed, literally woke me up at night. And it was more than once that I was woken up at night thinking about this issue. Now I realize that the bottling plant may be built in spite of the letters that I sent, in spite of community resistance. But if I'm waking up at night thinking about how bad this could be for our environment, not only because of the water that's taken out of the ecosystem, but also because of all the plastic that's going to be used and then potentially will end up in our oceans, then this to me is an indication of God's nudge. If I'm waking up at night, either my conscience or God or something is really bothered by this. So what I did was write letters to the Water Authority, the Township Supervisors, my state representative and senator, and the Department of Environmental Protection to tell all of them how I have serious concerns over the potential bottling plant. I felt that I needed to exercise my civic duty, and I tried to do so in a courteous manner, sticking to the facts of the Spring Creek Basin. What we do matters, if not to anyone else but God. So this is one example from my life in how we can notice God's nudge, notice our conscience, and then respond with some kind of action. I find it amusing that on several different occasions, Jesus is quoted as saying, the kingdom of God is near. Now, besides the fact that this is a revolutionary and subversive statement against the political machine of the Roman Empire, it also seems to me that Jesus is mocking or at least jabbing the religious elites who are listening to him. I think Jesus leaves out the rest of the sentence, which would have made it clear to these people, which I think includes, yes, the kingdom of God is near, so near, in fact, that you could reach out and touch it because anyone who treats their enemy with kindness, anyone who cares for the orphan, the widow, and the imprisoned, and anyone who heals and brings shalom is the kingdom of God in action. And by the way, you can participate and are invited to participate in this reign of heaven. I'm inviting you to my party. And as a side note, I'll be using the word kingdom, K-I-N-D-O-M, instead of kingdom because I think kingdom is more inclusive and in line with what Jesus was demonstrating on earth, that we are all kin, we are all interrelated, and can work together equitably to make a significant difference in the world. Now, a lot of people seem to struggle with this notion of suffering and justice and righteousness. And Adam Hamilton, in his book entitled Why?, talks about how the answer to our prayers to stop suffering in this world is often ourselves. We are the answer to prayer. God isn't going to miraculously have food show up in a starving village. God is not going to randomly strike down the man selling children for sex over the internet. God wants us to be active and working in this world to eradicate the injustice that we see. 
Praying about it is one thing, but we also must be willing to act. We must be willing to act because the God that Christians say that we believe in is a God all about relationship. We are human beings born to be in healthy and whole relationships with others, ourselves, creation, and God. So helping others is part of how we're designed. But we often think that God is a genie and our prayers are wishes that will happen if we have enough faith. I thought this way about God before, but at least what my personal experience in getting to know scripture better has told me, I don't think God works this way. But at the same time, I have to remind myself that I am the answer to someone's prayer. So I've had to shift how I see God because of my experience and reading of scripture. I believe that we have to get our hands and feet dirty in this beautiful mess of life in order to be and receive blessing, to alleviate suffering for even just one individual. Yes, defeating the evil in this world is ultimately God's responsibility. However, if we are co-laborers with God, like scripture tells us, then we are called to do the works that reflect the kingdom, the reign of heaven. Are we alleviating suffering? Are we helping our elderly neighbor? Are we taking care of the hungry child? This call to and demonstration of action is one of several reasons I think people got excited over Jesus' ministry. He was healing people. He casted out demons. He fed hordes of people. He was showing the people that the kingdom of heaven was in and through him and that Jesus was demonstrating the shalom of God and was inviting others to experience it in their lifetime with the additional promise that anyone who came to him could also experience this wonderful gift. Not everyone gets the opportunity to heal others, to cast out evil spirits, or miraculously feed 5,000 people. But just because this stuff doesn't happen every day doesn't mean that we aren't invited to do what we can, where we can. John Wesley had what we Methodists call the three simple rules. Do no harm, do all the good you can, and stay in love with God. What I'm highlighting in this podcast is the do all the good you can part. God expects us to do more than sit in a pew on Sunday morning for an hour. There are 168 hours in a week. Worship is generally one hour. And so the other 167 hours of our week count more than the one hour we spend in church. This is where Amos comes in. Amos is a dude from Tekoa in the land of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. By the time Amos comes around, the tribe of Israel has separated itself into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which included the geographically northern ten tribes, and Judah, which was the southern kingdom, had the southern geographical two tribes. Not very original in terms of naming, 
but descriptively accurate. Amos was summoned by God to tell the Northern Kingdom that they stunk. Good times. I'm sure he was super enthused about being chosen for that job because prophets, A, are always so well-liked and, you know, they become famous and often get killed. So, you know, insert your eye roll here on behalf of Amos. Now, it is generally agreed that Amos was the first of the prophetic books. And so it begins a unique tradition of telling the Israelites, whether the northern or southern kingdom, that their demise is coming because they didn't live according to God's standards. So Amos is the first. He was a trailblazer. And he specifically had a passion for liberating the oppressed. And many people point to the book of Amos today as the Old Testament statement on social justice. Now, I believe that Amos is saying that our worship isn't worthy of God if we're not doing all the good we can, helping as many people as we can, and living a life that is reflective of the divine goodness we say we worship. Now, I'm pretty intense, generally, but here's a really small segment of Amos 5 21 to 24. And this is God talking to the Northern Kingdom, the Israelites. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God is telling the Israelites that even though they're celebrating the feasts and gathering together, even though they're bringing the best offerings to the places of worship, God finds their actions abhorrent and distasteful. He calls them a stench. Your assemblies are a stench, which... Gotta love the, the strong wording that Amos uses. But God finds the Israelites' actions distasteful because they have hearts that have turned away from God's values and God's concern. It's not the worship that's the problem. It's the worshipers themselves. Ouch. God wants justice and righteousness to flow from his people, not the evil that they are perpetrating against each other and against God. I'm reminded also of the year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25, and I'm going to read to you verses 8 through 12. Count off seven, seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years. So that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap. 
what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. It's the 50th year where the fields lie fallow for a second year in a row. The land is given rest, time to rejuvenate and restore. The 50th year is a year where property is restored to its original clan or family owner, when debt is canceled and everyone basically goes back to even or zero. The writer of Leviticus is specific in instructing the people not to take advantage of each other. And as I've thought about this passage off and on for probably the last 10 years, I don't believe that the Israelites ever actually practiced this year of Jubilee, since many of the writings of the Torah were lost or forgotten, and it would it would be decades in between the reading, the public readings of Deuteronomy, even though Moses prescribed that they were supposed to be read every seven years. So in this time where the Torah was forgotten, greed and other idols took over the Israelites' heart. So the year of Jubilee was supposed to be a year of celebration, of restoration, of a radical way of resetting the scale so that those who had to sell their familial land could receive it back free and clear. They could be restored to their family, their community, their land. The year of Jubilee is the ultimate act of extravagant grace and justice. And it never happened. So people fell on hard times. Their crops didn't produce. They had to sell land. And the more well-off Israelites took advantage of the poorer segment of society. They weren't supposed to charge interest to each other, but they did. They weren't supposed to extort money from those less fortunate, but they did. They got comfortable and turned into just another tribe of people that looked very much like the nations that surrounded them. But that's not what God want that's not what God wanted from them. God wanted a people who were set apart to bless the entire world, as is blessed to Abraham while well, he was Abram, really, in Genesis twelve. And to me, this is where the words of Amos reverberate so strongly. Amos is telling the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, that what they do with the other 167 hours of their week outside of these festivals matter to God. Living lives worthy of Yahweh is an important factor in whether worship is honest and true and accepted and pleasing to God. There's a great quote from the NIBC that says this, Amos tells us that God does not accept worship of those who show no interest in justice in their daily lives, end quote. Ouch again. Amos tells the people that nothing they're doing in worship is pleasing to God because they ignore the poor and oppressed in their daily lives. He then uses a metaphor to make clear 
how important justice and righteousness are to God. Justice and righteousness should be an ever-flowing stream, which is in direct contrast to the wadis that are prevalent all over that region of the world. Wadis are a dry stream channel for most of the year, and then during the rainy season, they do have a tendency to flash flood. But then just as soon as water gets in them, the water recedes and they're dry again. God's love of justice and righteousness should not be like the wadis, which are sporadic. In fact, justice and righteousness are the streams of life. They must be constant, ever-present, ever-flowing, always, forever. They are an unconditional requirement of life, of God's people, and how they interact with others, including the earth. Amos recognized that the Israelites' moral ethic was not in alignment with God's ethic. The Israelites had dramatically veered off course, leaving behind God's requirement to take care of the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, and the poor. They discarded the notion that a just society, one that was intended to bless all of the people of the earth, needs to be a major part of their existence. Justice and righteousness need to be the focus of the 167. Amos is conveying the message that participating in the appointed festivals doesn't make up for taking advantage of the poor in daily life. These things go hand in hand and show one's heart. So when we pervert justice, it shows how much we've been corrupted. To bring Amos' message to today, I believe... One could say that when a religious group acts against the central tenets of righteousness and justice in their faith, then they have been corrupted to such a degree that God doesn't appreciate or receive their worship. One's worship of the divine is meaningless and hypocritical if one's life doesn't line up with the message of justice, grace, generosity, and forgiveness. It takes intentional action to think about our choices what we buy, how we treat the people who serve and wait on us in stores. For me, this intentional action is reflected in the work of environmental and anti-human trafficking advocacy and awareness. I see a deep-seated misunderstanding in our culture and the church of our relationships with each other, with God, with the earth, and even with ourselves. People aren't commodities to be bought and sold for other people's amusement, pleasure, or financial gain. The earth is not an inanimate object for us to pillage so that we can increase our wealth. When I buy UTZ certified coffee, um, GOTS certified sheets, or fair trade and organic cotton clothes, I am making a conscious choice to promote justice in the ways that I have been called. You might be called to show compassion to the homeless, to speak out on behalf of the marginalized, to reduce the amount of driving or travel that you do to reduce your carbon footprint. Or you could be called to advocate on behalf of minority children being left behind by our education system. As a people of God, We cannot believe that we are, quote, saved 
if we aren't intentionally participating in the kingdom of God, the reign of heaven, by making the world a more just and righteous place to be. The reign of God ushers in healing and wholeness and freedom and liberation to all people, but especially the world's most vulnerable. Now let's be very clear. Jesus did not invent the sinner's prayer or the fourfold plan of salvation or whatever tract it is that you think that if you know you attend worship on Sunday like a good Christian, then you're in. It doesn't work that way. Apparently, if we read scripture, it's never worked that way. But Jesus came as God in flesh and said that whoever does the work of his father will inherit the kingdom of God, which is in fact here and now. The kingdom is people working together to bring reconciliation and restoration to communities, to the earth, to families and organizations. It's people upholding righteousness and enacting justice in their daily lives. The other 167 hours in the week not spent in worship is what the kingdom is all about. That is the practical, nitty-gritty way we combat evil in this world with our own God-given two bare hands. We extend grace and mercy as a way of being, not something we do on a week-long mission trip in a third-world country. We stare injustice in the face and say no more. I won't stand by and be a participant in injustice any longer. What I've realized in my journey is that we also have to pick our battles. We aren't called to fight or fix everything because I think that would just make us all exhausted. God probably only has one or two things that we are to be passionate about at any given time. And so it's our responsibility to discern what those things are and then align ourselves to reflect the importance of those things throughout our intentional acts of justice and mercy and righteousness in the 167. So if you don't know what you're being invited to change, maybe spend some time in prayer, reflection, or meditation. See what bubbles up for you. Look back at your life. Think and reflect on what has been important to you, what your values are. Ask friends to help you discern where your heart is and what you care about. And then have the excitement and courage to get after it. Be the best reflection of the divine that you can be and enjoy the journey because the 167 matter. Now, when I was an interim pastor for three churches for a year, my sending forth to them was the same every week for 52 weeks. I chose the sending forth to remind them that the work of the kingdom of God was outside the walls of the church building. Our work is outside the worship time. Yes, God deserves our reverence and praise, but at the same time, we're invited to make a difference in the lives of those around us. So we have to get to work to bring justice and righteousness into the world for God's glory and honor. The phrase, now let's get to work, became my tagline. 
And I hope that if they remember nothing else about me, that they remember my sending forth to them. And so I offer you the same thing. Grace and peace, my friends. Now let's get to work.